So please turn in your Bibles today or to your device or Bible app of choice, whatever you brought with you. There's Bibles underneath the chair in the center of the room. But open up to Mark chapter 13. Mark 13, beginning in verse 1, a chapter (laughs) we'll be endeavoring to cover (laughs) in its entirety this morning. But by no means covering entirely. So there's my (laughs) disclaimer up front. (laughs) We can't get every nook and cranny, but we will do our best to seek the truth that God has for us today. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Evangelio de Marcos, capítulo 13, versículo 1 a 37. Profecía sobre la destrucción del templo. And we're continuing on in our journey with Jesus. A journey which is resolutely marching toward the cross. A destination which is now in the, in the narrative of Mark, two days away. Two days away from the scene that is in our present text before us. And we've been in the temple with Jesus since he arrived in Jerusalem back in chapter 11. All the scenes and stories and the places we've been as of late have been taking place in the temple. But now, the story picks up with Jesus and his disciples exiting the vast temple grounds. They're leaving the temple behind, and as they do, one of them will make a passing comment as they leave the temple, which will lead to a response from Jesus that will plunge us into the largest teaching unit in the gospel, a lecture on the end of the world. That's right. This morning, we're talking about eschatology. That is, the doctrine of the study of the last things, the end times, if you will, God's grand purpose for history and great goal toward which everything is headed. With that being said, I'm going to assume you're interested. (laughs) I'm going to assume you might be curious. I'm going to assume you might be hooked by me just mentioning those things that I have. (laughs) Who could honestly say they're not intrigued by this topic? (laughs) Or wouldn't want to know if they could when the end would come? Who could honestly say that? But in the midst of all the curiosity, the intrigue, And whatever ideas you already have that you're bringing to this topic this morning, here's a question to frame the rest of our time together. Why is this actually important for us? Why has God given us what he has to know about this? And I'm arguing (laughs) that he intends to do much more than satisfy our curiosity. This morning, we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 4, which contain the disciples' comment, Jesus' response to that comment, and the question it begs that launches us headlong into this thinking about the end. So join me as we read God's word and respond in prayer for God's help. Beginning in verse 1, Mark writes, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign 
when all these things are about to be accomplished. Join me in prayer. Lord, these are your words, and we need the help of your Spirit. We thank you for your grace in gathering us. We thank you for your grace in speaking to us through them. And we pray continually now for your grace that we might benefit, that we might be blessed in the hearing and the preaching and the believing of your word. We pray that as we consider these things, these last things, that you, through them, Lord, would exalt and would lift up and would magnify your Son for the glory of his name, for the good of our souls, and for the ongoing fuel that we draw from as we live the lives to which you've called us here on mission in our city. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So after besting his opponents in the temple and proving himself to be the true authority over that house, we've just seen Jesus turn right around and prophesy its impending destruction. That's what we just read. In response to his disciples marveling over this structure, the temple, which, you know, guys from Galilee, they, they live up north. They don't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. So this is kind of like a, a, a sight for them to see, among other things. They come and they see this thing. They say, how beautiful, how wonderful, how grand this wonder of the ancient world that it was. <laughs> and Jesus says to them, there's a coming day where there will not be one stone left upon another of this temple. This will be thrown down. This beautiful complex of marble and gold surrounded by massive white stone walls. Five football fields long and three wide. Imagine the, just the massive scale of this, of this structure containing at its heart the holiest place on the planet, right? At that time, where the God of gods, Yahweh, Israel's covenant, Lord, and Redeemer, where he dwelled among his people, this place was going to come crumbling down. Just try to imagine what that kind of prediction, what that kind of statement might have set off in their minds and hearts. For the disciples, hearing this, this news from Jesus, the destruction of the temple, to them, it signaled not only the end of Israel, right, as a people, as a nation, but it might as well have been the end of the world as they knew it. Consider what it would be like for us trying to wrap our minds around the destruction of, of the White House, the Capitol building, and, and the Statue of Liberty for good measure, right? All in one fell swoop. All these symbols, right, of our American identity. The places which uh, we look to uh, as the heart of our, our societal functioning, where leadership is derived, where what it means for us to be Americans uh, is, is represented, if all those things were to go away, we would might say, well, how, how could America be America without these, these monuments, these structures, these symbols of who we are and what it means for us to be us? The temple for Israel was like that, but so much more. The disciples were thinking to themselves, how could Israel be Israel apart from the temple? For it, it to be done away with signaled the end of the world as, as they knew it for first century Jews. Their assumption would probably be that this must mean the kingdom of God was about to come in full, <laughs> that the final day must be just around the corner. And so with all this going on in their minds, quite naturally, I would say, the disciples ask, when will this be? <laughs> and what will tell us that it's drawing near, Jesus? 
And in response to this question, Jesus sets off on a course of of teaching through verses uh, 5 through the end of this chapter, in which he instructs the disciples and us about not one, this is important, but two distinct days that are to come. And as he instructs them, he challenges us to think well about our view of the end. You see, the disciples, they wanted to know then, right? When will these things be? And truth be told, we want to know now. <laughs> but, but why? Why do we want to know when the end will come? Is it because we're, we're curious? <laughs> Is it because we might be fearful? Desiring maybe to be right? Um, satisfy our desires for control by, by knowing this bit of information? Or diminish our anxiety because we can, in that knowing, move from having to trust in God for these big things to being able to trust a little bit more in ourselves because we've got the answer. We need to ask ourselves, as we consider this text this morning, are our eschatological, that is, in times interest, are they maybe too focused on ourselves? And what I mean by that is are we too caught up as we consider this question in, you know, my systems of how it's all going to go down, right? My end times schemes, <laughs> my political hopes and aspirations associated with these things. Perhaps my hoped for avoidance of some great tribulational suffering. <laughs> my personal winning and triumph that's going to come as a result of Christ's return. My rewards to come. My paradise destiny that awaits. Perhaps my experience of winning or losing some sort of culture war the comfort that I will or won't have living in this world that I'm drawing from uh, in this end times thinking that I'm doing. Ask yourself this morning, is there any way in which your approach to or your perspective on the end times and the return of Christ actually detracts from your faithfulness to Christ, actually deters or detracts or distracts from your faithfulness to Christ instead of spurring it on? because we might be too selfishly preoccupied with how we fit into this scheme, making it all about us. We could become so caught up in, in politics and, you know, charting the end times and reading the Bible with the newspaper in hand sort of, you know, thing that we're focused is, is away toward those things. We could actually even be, as we consider the end times and the things that we begin to associate with it in our minds, <laughs> moved to inaction, paralyzed, right? Kept from working and and laboring and serving because of how bad the world around us is and how much worse it seems to be becoming and how much worse we think it's going to get. Move to inaction, move to apathy, move to complacency. And even as you read the Bible and you read texts like we're going to read today, are you so focused on future casting blueprints and timelines and things like that and figuring it all out like a puzzle that you miss the Christ? who is at the center of it all. See, church, we need an eschatology that is focused on Jesus to spur on our faithfulness to Jesus. And that's exactly what we have before us today in Mark 13. Cutting through our selfishness, if it's there, our laziness, if that's there, our fear, our preconceived notions of what this chapter might mean, and all the rest, right? The most important part of Christ's teaching in Mark 13 is that We need a view of the last day that spurs us on today. 
let me say it again. We need a view of the last day that spurs us on today. An eschatology, church, that is about Jesus, that exalts Jesus and spurs us on to live lives of faithfulness to Jesus. A view of the end that keeps him at the center and makes us more confident that our risen and reigning and redeeming Christ will return, as we sang, to finish what he started for his eternal glory and our ultimate and unending good. This is where we're headed this morning. This is our our goal. This is my prayer and aspiration for our time together. And so this morning, just ask yourself as we get going, does your expectation of Christ's return, does it make you more eager to pray for, to labor toward, and to give yourself to the advance of the gospel, the spread of Christ's joy, and the extension of his reign into every area of your life? If so, great. This text will be fresh fuel for that fire. But if not, this text has been given to you today to help you move toward a Christ-centered, gospel-focused view of the end that would spur on your own faithfulness to Jesus. And so, what we see before us in the two coming days that Jesus spoke of in Mark 13, these two days are meant to make us more faithful today. It's a pun. (laughs) And we'll make our way through the text before us, considering each of these days. First, the end of, important here, a world. Second, a picture of the end of the world. And finally, how we ought to live in light of that great day. Three points to guide our time together this morning. Three points to help us place Jesus at the center of our eschatology and encourage us to live lives filled with eagerness to welcome him back when he returns. And so let's dive into Jesus' teaching on that first day with our first point, and that is the end of a world. Verses excuse me, 5 through 31, <laughs> uh, parentheses, spoiler alert, this day, this first day, is the day that's already come. What do I mean by this? The first day in view in the text is one of which the when and the what like the disciples asked, that will be associated with its coming, can be known. That's important to, to grab a hold of here. It's a day that decisively marks the end of that old covenant era through and in the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. It's a day that for the disciples seemed like it might as well be the end of the age altogether, but it was actually the beginning of something new, a new era in God's working in the world, a new era in God's redemptive history. So it wasn't the last day, but you could also say it was the beginning of the last days. The disciples think it's going to be the end, and the kingdom is coming, but just not quite in the way that they had thought. And so, with that, contrary to how you might have read these verses before, perhaps, in Mark uh, 13, especially verses 5 through 27, here's my argument. (laughs) They are not about the end of the world and the second coming. Let me say that again. And what's before us right now on this first day, this is not the end. It's certainly related to, (laughs) and it will help us understand that better, but this itself is not the end. For this day to come, this first day, connected to the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, would not take place far off in the future at the end of human history, but within that present generation to whom Jesus had come. Look with me, if you would, down the page 
to verses 30 through 31. These two verses are our firm and fixed anchors <laughs> this morning to help us understand all the verses that precede them in this chapter. Grasping hold of them will enable us to read the rest of the chapter up to that point um, or right. So let's read them together. Look at verses 30 through 31 with me. After Jesus predicts and prophesies and foretells what he will foretell, he says this, closing out this section of the teaching. He says this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus' words as the, the prophet of prophets, the prophet par excellence, the very word of God himself speaking here, his words will not pass away without coming to pass that the present generation to whom he spoke when? In the first century. They will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, the current generation of Jewish people at that time would witness and experience all the things that Jesus prophesies in verses 5 through 27. For the, the meaning of that Greek word generation, as it's used 43 times in the New Testament, generally and plainly refers to in the Greek about a 40-year period. And so Jesus is here saying, hey, within this generation, within the next couple of decades, what I'm telling you now is all about to go down. So keep your eyes open for it. That would be like, you know, Jesus saying today to us, you know, and all the millennials on earth, you know, my generation, will not pass away until this thing happens. <laughs> he is locating the coming event, that first day, that destruction of Jerusalem within a time the disciples could know, could grab a hold of, and could, you know, measure to a certain extent. This first day is a day they can know about, the when and the what behind it. And so it's not a far-off future that his people 2,000 years ago or later might still be waiting for, but it's something that would take place in the apostles' own century. And so, having established this, what precedes, precedes verses 30 through 31, it details what will lead up to that climactic day of destruction in the first century, in Jerusalem, and with the temple. And we'll walk through these verses, <laughs> Lord willing, as quickly as we can. There's much in here, so we can't cover every detail. But we'll walk through these verses to, to come with the primary frame of reference that they are most important to us for what they say about Jesus. <laughs> Not just so we can put the chart together and put the puzzle pieces where they ought to go, but because they say something about Christ. More than anything else, these words before us and events that they describe, they're about the exaltation of Jesus. And so we'll take them section by section, reading together right now in verses 5 through 13. So read with me what Mark has for us there. He says this. Jesus begins his reply to the disciples' question, when will these things be and what will be the sign of their coming? Jesus answers, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But 
be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brothers will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So these things here, we're going to call them <laughs> signs that are not signs <laughs> of that first day. These things are going to happen, but Jesus says, don't be alarmed, right? Don't be troubled. These things have to take place first, but they're just the beginning of the birth pains. They're just the beginning of the end. And the end here is not the end of the world, but it's the end of a world, the end of the Jerusalem temple, the end of the old covenant era, the end of the old order of authorities right in the land who were rebellious and unbelieving and rejecting God's Messiah. So these things are going to happen, but don't worry. <laughs> the end is not just yet. It's only the beginning. And so we could spend a lot of time detailing all the connections here, <laughs> all the fulfillments of these um, words as they took place within that first century, but we'll try to just connect a few dots briefly. Jesus says, these things are going to come, so be warned in advance that I've told you. There will be false messiahs, men who claim to be prophets of God, like Theudas, the rebel of Acts 5.36. You can go read that in the New Testament. Or the unnamed Egyptian in Acts 21.38, who led a revolt of 4,000 people uh, against Rome. Both of these things happened, and many more, all before A.D. 66, when the war between the Jewish people and the Romans took place. Jesus says there's going to be prophets and pretenders and folks who come and try to lead you astray with political fervor and get you excited. The kingdom is here. And he says, don't be troubled by them. Don't be distracted. You just keep focused on your mission. You keep focused on the gospel and the advance of my kingdom. Don't let these guys trouble you. More things have to come before the end is near. Events like wars and rumors of wars, international strife, right, beyond what's happening there within the bounds of Israel, international strife, as well as the increasing uh, rising of tensions between the Jewish people and the Romans, who were the empire who placed them in subjection. The tensions would continue to rise and rise and rise over the course of these decades until outright war broke out. But even so, as the war breaks out in 66 AD, the end still wouldn't come for another four years, and we'll talk about that more. But Jesus says, Strife is going to happen. Tensions will rise, but it's not yet the end. There will also be events, he says, like earthquakes and famines that will take place. There was an earthquake in Jerusalem in 67 AD. There were also those in Philippi and Pompeii in the early 60s. And remember as well, uh, in the book of Acts, a lot of this we can see fleshed out really helpfully in the book of Acts. You guys remember the famine in Acts chapter 11. Agabus the prophet comes. He says there's going to be a famine in the land of Jerusalem, and that leads Paul to do what? to go take up a collection for the churches in Jerusalem. And he goes from church to church, all his Gentiles, and they, expressing the unity that they have in the body of Christ, they give to the poor saints in Jerusalem to help them with the famine relief effort. There will be earthquakes, there will be famines, there will be natural disasters, which tend to make us even so today go, is it the end? Lord, are you coming? Right? Big events like that happen. Tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, you name it. But Jesus says, these still, these big events are not yet the end. 
So don't be troubled by them. Next, he mentions in verses 9 through 13, the persecution of the early church. And we can recall the book of Hebrews for this. Remember in the book of Hebrews, those early Jewish believers, they were being pressured, weren't they? They were being pushed and tempted by the unbelieving Jewish people around them, by their neighbors, to reject Jesus, just to come back to the old ways, worship according to the old covenant. We don't need Jesus. And the fact that they would tell them to come back to the old ways means that that temple is still standing. It's still there for them to come back to. We also think of the book of Acts, which, again, if anything starts to click in your mind about the book of Acts, there's (laughs) numerous examples here of the persecution of the early church, right? The book of Acts, just days after Christ's ascension, Peter and John are brought before the same trial, the same council that condemned Jesus. They're jailed. Stephen is martyred. Paul is breathing threats against the church, right, before his conversion. There's frequent beatings and stonings and imprisonments that the disciples undergo. James, the brother of John, is beheaded and martyred. The book of Acts is full of persecutions. It's full of the disciples, the early church being brought before councils and kings and rulers, even Paul going to Caesar himself. But all the while, though there's persecution, though there is certainly pressure upon the church, God's spirit is working in and through this. And the gospel, though Paul, even at the end of the book of Acts, he's bound in chains, but the word of God is not. The gospel has gone forth from Jerusalem and Judea all the way to the ends of the earth. The church will be persecuted, but Christ indicates that the spirit would come and the spirit would be given so that their mission would flourish even amidst the persecution. And that's what verse 10 gets at. And this could be the the, the most far-fetched so far (laughs) that I'm arguing here, but go with me on this. Verse 10, and the gospel will even in this time be proclaimed to all the nations. How could that be the case? There are still people today who don't know about Jesus. But understand this, that first, this is not so much a prediction that, you know, to every nation and every tribe and tongue and every people group, the gospel will go forth before this event happened, but it's a declaration from Jesus. He's saying here, that the gospel will go forth in this intervening time to Jews and Gentiles alike to create an international people of God, all before AD 70. And again, we mentioned the book of Acts. What's the, the formula at the top of that? Jesus says in Acts 1.8, the Spirit will come and empower you to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, to Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. And by the end of the book of Acts, and three decades from that time, where is Paul with the gospel? He's at Rome. The gospel has gone forth from the Jews to the Gentiles. It has reached to the end of the empire, the edge of the known world in that day. So much so that Paul in Romans 15, back when he's writing in the late 50s, can say, hey, I've pretty much covered all the ground I got here. <laughs> the only thing I can do now is go to Spain. Right, Emily? All he can do is go to Spain because the gospel's covered the known world and the known empire. The gospel does indeed create an international people of God, even in the first couple decades of the church. God will, and we see that God has come to dwell among the Jews and Gentiles alike who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, and he has, even before that old temple was destroyed, established a new temple among the church before that present temple was destroyed. So these things are taking place in the first century. And all these things, while momentous, are just the beginning of the end of the Old Covenant age. They were signs uh, of the beginning of the birth pains, but they were not the sign that that destruction was about to come. That is reserved in verse 14 for the abomination of desolation. So read with me that. 
This is the sign of signs, the sign that something's about to happen. But, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This event, this abomination of desolation, which is drawn from the book of Daniel in chapter 9 and 11, um, is the event to which the disciples are supposed to look that's going to tell them, hey, it's about to go down. We need to take note of this and flee (laughs) and run for our lives because Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And we could spend a lot of time on what this means, but we can't uh, this morning. But the idea of the abomination of desolation going back to the book of Daniel refers to a a desecration, a profaning, a treating as unholy the holy space of the temple that caused the sacrifices back then to stop. And Jesus is saying here that something's going to happen in the temple which is going to profane it, to make it unholy, to disrupt the regular sacrifice. And there are different theories as to what that could be. There's not a scholarly consensus. And we also uh, know that Mark is writing this before AD 70 has happened. He's writing this in the mid-60s, first century. And so Mark himself is still waiting for exactly what it's going to be as he's writing this from Rome. But the idea would be that there would be a sign within the temple that would be so clear and so unmistakable that something unholy was happening. It could be from what the Romans were doing as they were coming in, um, setting up standards and banners, offering sacrifice. It could be from a zealot group that actually got into a fight within the temple and blood was spilt and human blood was shed in the holy place defaning or, you know, profaning and uh, desecrating the temple. The point is, though we don't know exactly what it was um, in our day, in their day, it would have been very clear. Something is going to happen in the temple that will disrupt the sacrifice. That's going to tell you the temple is about to be undone. And when that happens and when you see it, you need to get the heck out of Dodge, is what Jesus is saying, which is what he's talking about in verses 15 through 27. And so let's read those together. He says, Let the one then, when this sign happens, who was on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who was in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is Christ. Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. And so Jesus says there will be an unmistakable sign in the temple. And when that occurs, you need to make haste. If you're on the rooftop, just keep running. Don't go back down to the house to get your bag. Just go. Because what is going to take place in the city of Jerusalem, is a siege. The Roman army is going to come, and they're going to lay siege to it, and once they're outside the walls, you're not getting out. You will be caught up in the invasion. You will be caught up in the destruction. So once this sign occurs, you need to leave. You need to flee. You need to run for your lives before it's too late. The end has come. The end is upon. It'll be something that is devastating and catastrophic, which is why Jesus speaks like the prophets do in the Old Testament in verse 19, where he says, you know, using that sort of prophetic hyperbole, nothing's happened like this ever before and ever will again. Well, the prophets talk like that multiple times in the Old Testament, and that's not a way of saying they're being imprecise, but it's a way of communicating the intensity of the devastation. And really, with the destruction of the temple, this temple never would be rebuilt again. The temple that would be raised up in its place 
is Christ's body. And he's been raised up to indestructible life, never to die again. There will never come a new temple that will replace this old one. This is the end definitively of that old era. Catastrophic. With the siege of Jerusalem, the battle, the death toll, the people suffering under the Roman invasion and incursion. And Jesus is telling his people, the church within Jerusalem, and anyone who will heed his warning, (laughs) you need to run for your lives when you see this sign. You need to leave and take my word for it. And so all this brings the Romans uh, to the edge of the city to do their work of destroying. That siege would only last five months before the city was destroyed, before the temple was burned and demolished. Stone upon stone, none left standing. The end has come. And what we see in that end coming, in that destruction, is um, expressed to us in verses 24 and 25, not just as a bare historical fact, but as an act of God's judgment. So read with me verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation of the Roman siege of Jerusalem, after four years of war with Rome, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. These are prophetic, uh, it's a prophetic way of speaking. We see it in the Old Testament in which darkness covering the land is associated with God's judgment. The falling stars mean the powers in heaven are being shaken, corresponding to the powers on earth that are being overthrown. And the temple authorities, right, losing well, their, their jobs, <laughs> their authority, their place to reign and rule over Israel. The sun is darkened. The moon won't give its light. The stars are falling because God is pouring out his judgment. We see this in the cross of Christ, right? As he hangs there, bearing our sin, what happens? Darkness covers the land. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment. God is punishing. He is judging unbelieving Israel, those among his people who had rejected their Messiah and Savior, who had rejected his kingship in favor of lesser kings. This is an act of God's judgment upon an unbelieving people. And in the climax of this great upheaval, verse 26 says this, that as all this is taking place, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. (laughs) And this is another one that can trip us up. (laughs) That can be tricky, that can be contested, that can seem, how did that happen in the first century? Well, consider this. Jesus is saying, and then at that point, in this catastrophic judgment, they will see, that is the current generation in Jerusalem, the temple authorities, the unbelieving Jewish people, and all who had rejected God's Messiah, they would come to see Jesus vindicated by God and decisively proven to be all he said he was. What would be experienced on earth in this judgment? It would be a representation of the Son of Man's, that is Jesus' authority and power in heaven. Here in this text, the coming of the Son of Man, and we got to read carefully here, does not refer to a coming down. Do we see anything about a descent? Jesus is not coming down to earth, but instead, instead of coming down at the end of the age, it says he is coming to. Coming to, as we read in the book of Daniel in chapter 7, coming to the throne of the Ancient of Days to be coronated, to be crowned as king over, as Daniel 7.14 reads, all peoples, nations, and languages, and to receive an everlasting dominion. So in verse 27, what Jesus is saying is that when the temple is destroyed and all my opponents and all who rejected me are proven wrong, 
I will be proven right. <laughs> they said I was not the authority over God's people, and I will decisively, demonstrably, you cannot deny I will take away their authority, and you will see me, as it were, reigning in heaven, the true king, the true authority, the true temple to which all God's people must now look and go to access him. Christ will be proven in heaven to be who he said he was through this act of judgment upon the earth. That's what he's meaning here. That's what's taking place in this destruction. And this would mark the end of the old covenant era and the old order in Israel. Jerusalem, temple, and her authorities are out, and the Son of Man is in. He is the true head of the church, the true head of the people of God, which is now not restricted to Jerusalem, but is made up of every tribe and nation and tongue, wheresoever they might call upon the name of the Lord, which is what verse 27 uh, indicates to us. Verse 27 reads, And then, at this time, that the Son of Man is shown to be enthroned and reigning, the authority of all authorities Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect, his people, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. When Jesus comes in 70 AD to prove himself to be the king and the authority and do away with that old temple, he'll show there to be a new temple established wherever the Holy Spirit is dwelling among a people of God, Jewish, Gentile, whoever they might be comprised of that are calling out upon his name. And in 70 AD, when that old temple is destroyed, we see that the temple of God... (laughs) is alive and well. Christ is reigning and dwelling among his people that he's gathered from the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem to the edge of the empire at that point. And so in all this, what was symbolized in the temple cleansing in chapter 11, way back when, and will be signaled in the tearing of the veil during the crucifixion of Jesus in chapter 15, is now made clear in 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in history for all to see. That Jesus Christ and the new covenant, sealed by his blood, that this and this alone is the true way to life and peace and access to the holy presence of God. And that it's time to stop, if you, if you still were, it's time to stop trusting in the shadows and cling to the substance that is Christ. He's making that clear. There's no more old order to look to or to trust in. It's me and me alone. Here's where you come to find God to access God and to be reconciled to God through my sacrifice, not the old sacrifices that only pointed to me to begin with. This is what's happening here in the destruction of Jerusalem. It is the exaltation of Jesus as everything he said he was, the prophet who predicted this event 40 years in advance, the king who reigns over his people, the new temple where we would go to come and meet God. This is what's happening here. And so we wrap up this first point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a mouthful that it's been, by returning to our anchor verse and heeding the charge from Jesus to receive this morning in verses 28 through 31. Look at those with me. Jesus says, wrapping up this section, from the fig tree then, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he or it is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Christ has said to his disciples then, I'm telling you this, (laughs) that just as certain as the fig tree and leaf means that summer is inevitably approaching, these things will all happen in this generation, and this will be the abomination of desolation. This will be the sign. Heaven and earth itself will pass away, but my words 
divine and authoritative as they are, will never pass away, return void, or be proven false. He says to his disciples, take this to the bank. This day is coming. Be ready for it. And so making our transition to speak to our second point then. (laughs) This first day, it is the end of a world, indeed. In that day, the destruction of Jerusalem, the risen and reigning Christ, he is exalted as the king, as the judge, and as the savior. In a way, that previews his glory at the end of the world. And this brings us to our second point. And this will be a little bit shorter than the first one. But our second point, we have a picture of the end of the world. This is the day that right now we're headed toward, this day. But we want to make the connection here, that the events of that first day that we just um, spent time walking through, they give us a picture a foreshadowing, an anticipation of what it will be like on the last day. On that day when Jesus does return to judge not just unbelieving Israel, but the entire world. To save his own people to the uttermost and to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. This time, not just coming in heaven, but bringing heaven down to earth. And that great and final day, that's the focus of verse 32 in his teaching here. Verses 32 through 37, when Jesus makes a transition where he says, but as for that day and that hour, no one knows. There, Jesus turns from speaking of in those days, like we read in the earlier part here, in those days plural, to in that day singular. There is a coming day, distinct from what he's just described in the destruction of Jerusalem, to which we can get a a feel for, an understanding of, an anticipation for, as we look at the events that took place in the first century. And so quickly here, as we look to the destruction of Jerusalem, to, to, to all, to everybody who would be uh, thinking of that event, that judgment of God, the events surrounding 70 AD, they are signs of the trouble, of the calamity, and of the battle that will surround the return of Christ when he does come. There will be a future time, as we read in the rest of the New Testament, characterized by deception, characterized by suffering and trial that will precede the end you know, with competing and false and counterfeit Christ, like we see in the book of Revelation, as well as a coming battle that's described, if you want to read this this week, in Revelation 19, 11 through 21, where we see the armies of the beast and the false prophet mounting up against Jesus, and he comes, the warrior, the king, the Lord of lords, and he captures the beast and the false prophet, and he casts them into the lake of fire, along with the devil himself, and with a word from his mouth, the sword that would come from his mouth, he conquers the entire army that's arrayed against him. There will be a coming day of battle. Christ will win. He will be victorious, but it will be marked by suffering and trial and some calamity to come. So what we see in in Jerusalem and the destruction of the Roman army and of that warring period, it does anticipate what we'll experience leading up to that great day. Second, to those who are outside of Christ, to to those who are non-Christians. The judgment upon unbelieving Jerusalem, it does anticipate God's judgment, God's righteous wrath upon all those who have rejected his son for all time. That the true Christ, no counterfeit Christ, who was enthroned in heaven after his victorious resurrection and ascension, will return, uh, even as we sang this morning, to, among other things, judge the world in righteousness. 
pouring out God's wrath on unrepentant rebels who have broken his law, conquering every kingdom that's arrayed against him, and righting every wrong that's been done. This will be like the destruction of Jerusalem times a thousand, maybe more, as Christ comes to judge and to rectify and to be king and rule over all rebels, like he did then in Jerusalem, but now concerning all the world. He will come as judge. But even as Mark 13 is a picture of judgment, it's also a picture of grace. Because to those who are in Christ, this picture is a reassurance that for us, whatever does happen prior to Christ's coming, our Lord will, even as he would the church back in the first century, he will preserve us through all suffering and keep us in faith till the end. God will cut short the days for his elect. And even as the false prophets come, he will not allow them to be drawn away and deceived. Christ will preserve his people through whatever suffering, whatever trial may await us. Christ will come, our king, and bring true and full and divine justice to this earth. He will win the day, <laughs> church, no matter how bad things seem, and he will save us to the uttermost, bringing us into the fullness of his kingdom. Our king will come for us, bringing heaven to earth, ushering in that redeemed people that he began to form from the first century to this point now, ushering in that redeemed people from every tribe and nation and tongue into the fullness of glory with him forevermore. And so the, to the believer, as we read about the destruction of Jerusalem, it helps us to look forward to that day with confident anticipation. And this morning, if you've heard all this <laughs> up to this point, to the non-Christian who may be hearing this now, because all this is true, and certainly will be, here's the, the encouragement to you. While it is still called today, I encourage you, I implore you, to repent and believe in Christ before the last day comes. So that when he comes, and he comes again, it will be for your joy. Not judgment, not fear, not something to be looked at with dread or uncertainty, but when he comes, it will be for your joy because you will walk with your king along with his people and enjoying his goodness and riches and fullness forevermore. That'll be your life. Today, if you are not yet a believer in Christ, he offers himself to you, calling you to believe that he is all who he said he is, the son of God, the king of kings, and the only savior from sin and death calling you to trust in his sacrifice on the cross for your sins and your rebellion against God, your breaking of his law, and to trust in his resurrection as the promise of new life to be had with him. Oh, he calls you today to enter into a, a life <laughs> that when he comes won't mean the end, but actually the beginning of something unbelievable, indestructible, and unending, and all the joy that's to come with it. And even sweeter. <laughs> it's a life that begins now, as you received Christ by faith and are received into his family, the church, and walk with his people now, by his spirit now, forward into a life that never ends, but only grows sweeter as we behold our Savior on that great day, coming face to face with him. Church, that day is coming, and I pray that each of us would look toward it with confident hope. Oh, the destruction of Jerusalem does prepare us for what, what's to come. 
it prepares us for that last day. But, and in closing here, we still might ask, when is that day coming? <laughs> we haven't gotten back to that question. The destruction of Jerusalem is the end of a world, which prepares us for the end of the world. But when is that going to happen? How do we prepare ourselves for it? And this brings us to our third and final point, briefly. How to live today in light of that last day. This is our present experience as the church in between the first and second coming of Christ. And so join me as we read verses 32 through 37. But concerning that day, the last day, the return of Christ, that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, then I say to all my people for all time, stay awake. Unlike the first day, Jesus provides no signs for us to anticipate the coming of the last day. This is the second day, this day of which no one knows, not the angels, not the apostles to whom he spoke, not even the Son according to his human nature as he speaks it then knows when this day will be. The upshot then is that if all these don't know, we probably won't know either. <laughs> this has not been given for us to know when that day will come. So the application for us here, among other things, is that any attempt on our part to know or to calculate or to conclude when this day or hour might be, and there's an unfortunate many who have done this in the history of the church. You can look that up and read all kinds of uh, miss, uh, misses there. Let's, just, let's say that. Uh, this is a wild goose chase that's doomed from the start to try to know the day or the hour. There will be no definitive signs to prepare us for what's coming on that last day. But then, does that mean we've been left unprepared? And I would say here, by no means. And this is what we'll focus on as we close. Seeing as we don't know the, the time or the hour, and I believe God in his wisdom and his grace has set it up this way on purpose, what we are to do then is to be on guard, to keep awake, and to strive to be found as faithful servants when Christ returns. And he gives us the illustration of the master in the house who goes away, who leaves his servants to work, and anybody who's been an employee or maybe been on a sports team or been a child who's received instructions from a parent, we all know the <laughs> the shame, the fear, the embarrassment of being caught red-handed, right, when the boss or our parents or our coach comes back and we're found not doing <laughs> what we were given to do, right? Like when I ask my son to clean up the playroom and I come back literally an hour later and he's still playing and it's even messier than when it started and he's got no defense at that point. <laughs> we all know what that's like. He says the master is coming back. He's given you work to do. He says he's given each, each of us, his own work to do. Be found faithful laboring according to your calling, according to what is ordinary Christian faithfulness when he returns. So Christ here, he's calling us to live in such a way now that when he comes back, and it might come suddenly, like Paul says, like a thief in the night, he wants us to be living in such a way every day, faithful Christian lives, 
that would not shrink back or be embarrassed or be um, regretting what we're doing as he returns, but living in such a way that we could turn from what we are doing, turn from our labor, turn from our service, turn from our work, and say, welcome back, Lord, and then fall on our face and celebrate that he is here with us. Live every day like that. He's given us work to do, and though we don't know when he's coming, we're not clear on that, we are very clear, aren't we, on our mission as a church. We are very clear on what it means to be ordinary Christians, living faithfully in this world. <laughs> Christ, see, he hasn't called us to be doomsday preppers, right, right, of the end times, stocking up on canned goods or counting the days until our end times sequence kicks in, or in any way withdrawing from our calling in the Christian life. Instead, he says, I'm not telling you the day or the hour, so keep living, keep working, keep striving, as if I might come back tomorrow or the next day, but be found faithful, doing what I've given to you now, as Christians, as husbands, as wives, as children, as employees, as my image bearers, as my ambassadors in this world, attend to those things faithfully so that whenever I do come, I'll find you faithfully laboring. He says, don't be like, you know, a football team that when the game is close to the end, pulls its starters, right? <laughs> so nobody gets hurt. Whether they're winning by a wide margin or they're losing and say, let's just cut our losses. He says, don't be like that. Don't be like that team that starts to cruise or starts to coast or gives up or says, ah, oh, it's not worth it in the end. He says, keep running the same plays I've given to you and trust the end game <laughs> and the results and the score to God. And trust that as you serve me and enjoy what a wonder it is to serve me, that you can be confident that no matter how close or far off we are to that doomsday clock striking, guess what? Your mission remains the same. So we can throw ourselves into it and we can march forward day after day after day, even to the return of Christ Eve, <laughs> setting on the same path, walking in the same calling, trying to exalt Christ by his grace and the power of his spirit through everything we do. Church, we need a view of the last day that spurs us on today because our calling doesn't change no matter how much the world around us changes, no matter who's the president, no matter <laughs> how hard it is to live in California, no matter how close that last day looms, we've been given a mission today that never changes. And so let's carry on in ordinary faithfulness until that time and anticipate that day with confidence because the same Christ who redeemed us on the cross will return for us and bring us into eternal joy before his throne. Let's pray. Lord, you've come and you will come again. And we pray that as we look forward to that great day, all our days in between would be days striving to exalt your name. For the glory of your name, for the good of our souls, for the good of our neighbors, Lord, would you help us to be faithful and to have joy all along the way. We love you, we praise you, and we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.